Hey everyone, honored to be uh, able to offer the message to you today. We've been walking through a series called Amazing Stories at the Mariner Campus and stepping into the narrative of Jesus at work during his earthly ministry. How he interacted with people, how he interacted with his creation. And I think what's important is uh, is that we, we do not see these just as, as fascinating stories to entertain us, but they're meant to give us a glimpse of the larger beautiful story that you and I have been invited into. So as Jesus performs miracles and spoke into people's lives, he was pointing out and foreshadowing the kingdom that we one day that would one day come in, in fullness. So today we're going to step actually out of the gospel accounts and into the book of Acts, or correctly referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. Acts was written by uh, an early Christian named Luke, the same author as the Gospel of Luke, and, uh, and it records the growing movement of Christianity, the church, or what was referred to as the way, as it spread all over the Mediterranean world. Since Christianity was an assault on the worldview of the day, calling Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords and not Caesar, and it was in some ways seen as an assault on Judaism, uh, it came up against a lot of resistance, and that is what the book of Acts records. Well, one of the greatest assaults against the way was brought by a man named Saul, who would one day be referred to as Paul, and who you may or may not know ended up writing a massive amount of, of the New Testament. So the question is, how did Saul become the Paul that we know? Saul was by all accounts well-decorated, honored, and educated in the Jewish religion. He was a religious leader, and he was a hater, an adamant hater of the church, doing everything he could to snuff it out. In one of his own letters later on, after his conversion, he writes this in Galatians 1.13. He says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Some translators say the word he uses for persecuted could also be translated mauled. I mauled the church. In Acts 26, verses 9 to 11, Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And it was on one of these trips to one of these foreign cities that Saul came to an end and Paul began. So if you have your Bibles, you can grab them and turn to Acts 9. And if you want to follow along with notes, you can go to cachurch.info and hit sermons. Acts 9, verses 1 to 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were, who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. God's word to us today. 
When I was 14, I was at Expo 86. And for those of you who are old enough to remember Expo 86, there was uh, one highlight at Expo 86 called H2O, water park. A giant water park, sh shaped like a spaceship. And it was always crowded with kids running around. And I was there with a bunch of teenage boys, of course, causing havoc. And one of the guys I was hanging out with at the time is a guy named Justin. And Justin never listened. Adults were always telling him uh, to smarten up, uh, obey the rules. And so at the water park, he was being corrected over and over, yelled at the entire time. Until at one point, in a, in a flagrant disregard for the rules, he shoved somebody over and he started running, looking over his shoulder and laughing with glee. And with a smile and, uh, and, and a laughter, uh, thinking to himself, all is great in the world. What are all these people worried about? Justin, not looking where he was going, ran full speed into a sign fell back with his nose all bloody. And this sign, it's not like it was dangling from chains, it was solid, firmly bolted to two metal posts. Well, what made this story even more poetic was the fact that on this sign were the very rules Justin was ignoring and then brought him to his, his bloody nose and put him on his butt situation was the fact he was not following these rules. And he was forced to feel the full effect of breaking the rules by running into the rules. Well, in Acts 9, Saul has just come up against everything he has denied and ignored and attempted to snuff out. And it literally knocked him down. He was literally knocked down by this vision of Jesus. Now, the danger in the story of Saul to Paul is the dramatic aspect. There's lights, there's vision, and there's, it's followed by blindness and voices and falling off a horse. So we're in danger of getting dis distracted. I mean, I didn't get knocked off a horse. Did I really even have a conversion experience? Or should I be waiting for something like this? Well, even biblically, this is not the, the norm, and the book of Acts is full of what we would call everyday, regular conversions. Uh, not miracles, no, no j just discussions. Philip and the Ethiopian in chapter 8 of Acts, Paul and Silas talking to Lydia in Acts 16, straightforward discussion leading to understanding and lives being changed by the gospel. But the important thing is, is what is common to them all, because we see that there, is so, there are some important aspects that are highlighted in Saul becoming Paul that are important aspects of what we as Christians call conversion. There's a big question. Saul asks what, what we all need to ask. There is Jesus' big response that we must listen to, and there is Saul's proper response to, Paul, to Jesus' response. There's conversion. We, we, we see Saul's big question, and it's, it's a big and it's an important question. He says, who are you? Who is Jesus? It's a question for Saul, it's a question for you and me and everyone who wants to wrestle with the most important question a human can, can possibly ask. Who is Jesus? In verse 5, Saul seems to recognize that, that whoever he's seeing is some sort of Lord, it's someone who's above him. He's not necessarily proclaiming as you and I would that you know, Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords yet. But he at least is recognizing that, he is in, that, that this person is in a power position over him. And we, see, we soon see everything he thought about God, the box that he'd placed God into, is just about to have its lid ripped off in this apocalyptic vision. Now here's the important question. Why did it take so long? Saul was not ignorant of scripture. He, he'd witnessed the life-changing work of Jesus in, in Stephen when he testified to the story and power of Jesus in Acts 7. Paul was there, Saul was there. We see it in the movement of the church that was growing. He very well, Saul may have even heard Jesus speak. Definitely heard about his ministry, heard about his miraculous works. See, but Saul wanted a God who he could tame and impress by his works. He wanted, he wanted badges. He wanted to, to know the calculations, a God that he could figure out. 
But what he came across was a God who pushed up against his ideals and his ideas, a God who challenged him, challenged his big questions and answered them, but maybe he didn't answer them in the way that Saul thought they would be answered. And to be honest, that's good because that's the, that's the kind of God that you and I need. That's the kind of God who can change us, that remakes us into something better. Tim Keller says this, he says, you can only get converted and changed when you begin to sense you're dealing with a God who is not just the way you want him to be. There are some scary things about him. There are some disturbing things about him. There's some things he says that you have trouble accepting. Until you have a God like that, you don't have a real God. You certainly don't have a God who can change your heart. You have a cardboard God who is the product of your heart. That's why Jesus' big response to Saul's big question is so powerful. He did not fit Saul's idea of God. Jesus' response is, is maybe even more powerful than we might first think it is, than it first seems. Jesus is clear. When Saul asks him, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, imagine how that statement would have hit Saul. First, to realize that he was encountering Jesus. I mean, Jesus is saying, I'm, I, there's so much packed into this. He's saying, I'm the resurrected one. Saul accusing the way, accusing believers, the disciples of Jesus of being liars and leading people astray with the, the far-fetched story of a resurrected Messiah. And now he hears the voice of the presumed dead Jesus. He now sees his, this presumed dead Jesus. He's now blinded by this presumed powerless, dead, no good cult leader. He's now confronted by the fact that Jesus was a part of what God was doing all along throughout history. It is time for a massive paradigm shift for Saul to become Paul. The words of the apostle, the, the, the gospel proclaimed on the streets of Jerusalem, proclaimed by these people of the way, the Christ, the Messiah, has now showed up in front of Saul. Who am I? I am the answer to everything you're trying to gain with your religion, your power, your titles, everything you've been running from and ignoring, you've run right into me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. But that's not all that's being said here. In some sort of mysterious, sacramental way, when, when Saul abuses the church, he abuses Jesus. The church is a mysterious extension of Jesus. When you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. So let's press pause there and let's let that hit us with full power. Jesus made it clear throughout his ministry that he is creating a sacramental community, one that is mysteriously united with him. So a, a quick note on how we treat the church. He said to Saul, you're persecuting me when you persecute the church. Well, we can't say we love Jesus and then badmouth his church. James made it clear in his letter that there is a, a disconnect with those who claim we are, we are one with Christ when we badmouth other believers. Speaking of the way we, we talk about each other, he says of our tongues in James chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. He says, with our tongues we bless our Lord, our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same, same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In other words, how can those with the same source of life and salvation, captured by the same love into the, into the family, purchased by love, speak of a spiritual brother or sister with disdain? It's against our makeup. Our love for Christ will always be made obvious by our love for his bride. 
Now, it's become pretty popular to badmouth the church. And sometimes Christians do. We, we, we do it so we come off as relatable or to distance ourselves from the historic church. The church has scars, for sure, mostly when it's ceased to be the church, rather when it's, when it's, it's not fulfilling the duties of the bride of Jesus and it's trying to have political power or whatever. But it's heartbreaking how quick believers are willing to badmouth Jesus' wife. You persecute, reject, badmouth the church, that is to badmouth the community created by the death of Christ. When speaking of how a husband ought to love his wife, Paul in Ephesians can think of no greater example of complete emptying of the self for love of the other than to point to Jesus' love for his church. In Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Jesus says to Saul, when you persecute my church, you persecute me. And he would say to you and to me, when you dismiss my church, you dismiss me. Rather than drip with disdain over the mistakes of the church, let's mourn, let's repent, but let's love the church. Jesus' big answer to Saul's big question is, I am the resurrected Christ creating a new community whom I deeply love and I care about, so be careful, Saul. <laughs> Well, after Saul is led to Damascus because he's blind and he's recovering, he's fasting, he's praying, a man by the name of Ananias gets brought into this story. In verse 10 of chapter 9, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man, this is a different Judas, uh, a diff different man of Tarsus named Saul, and behold, he'll be praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his, hand, lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to, to, to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now imagine you're Ananias and Jesus says to you, Ananias, and you say, Here I am, Lord. Now, when anyone in Scripture says, Here I am, Lord, they mean, Whatever you're going to ask me, let's do this thing. And I don't know what Ananias had in mind, but I can almost guarantee that this was not it. But Ananias pushes back and Jesus says, go. And he says, okay. Now, my guess is that Ananias was empowered more by obedience than he was by courage. I can't imagine what must be going through his mind ministering to someone who came to the city to take him to prison, whom he heard stories of, of persecuting Christians smiling as they were murdered. But in obedience to be the extension of Jesus, he comes to Saul and he says words that must have shocked Saul. Here he is blind, helpless, approached by one who is probably on his list of criminals to take back to Jerusalem, and Ananias, who once feared this man. He talked about his, his evil intent with other believers probably. He approaches Saul and he says, Brother Saul, Jesus has sent me to give you your sight back, to pray that you be filled with the Spirit. And I think we need to see that, that Jesus' revelation of himself on the road to Damascus and the work of Ananias are not two separate events. Ananias is a continued extension of Jesus' love for Saul. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he will be leaving and returning to his Father in heaven. 
but to not be alarmed because he will leave his spirit to empower his followers to continue the work of the gospel. He says in John 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Well, what does that mean? It means that when the church lives out the spirit-animated love of Jesus, Jesus continues to be manifest in the world. John writes again in 1 John 4, 10 to 12, he says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So when, when the church gets that right, it is the church that Jesus died to create. And I would say that when the, the church gets that right, personal evangelism becomes a lot easier. When the church is known as, a, as an extension of the love of God in our community, in our families, uh, in our work, the pathway for the message of the gospel has been paved and, and the, way, the way people perceive the church and Jesus makes our evangelism a lot easier. So Saul has seen the resurrected Christ. He has witnessed the familial love of the church through Ananias. And he now comes to a point where he must respond. Like many who maybe walk into a church, hear a solid uh, representation of who Jesus is and what he's done, or spent some time with a Christian friend, they hear the truth of who Jesus is, they experience the love of his community, and they come to the point of deciding, am I in? We've had the big question for Jesus, who are you? We've heard Jesus' big response, I'm the resurrected Jesus, and now we see Saul's proper response to Jesus' response. In verses 18 and 19, it says, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he rose. He was, he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Something like scales fell from his eyes, but also a callousness has fallen from his heart. Saul can see clearly now. The rain is, we're all thinking it. Notice the urgency to, to be obedient. He rose, he was baptized, he ate, he was strengthened. There's, there's this immediate power and strength. He has the spirit, he has the, the nourishment, he has the proper perspective. Let's do this thing. Saul's immediate response when he's able to respond was to be all in, to, to give up all that he had built for Jesus. And it's important to say, to step into Jesus' community, to hang out with other Christians, with disciples in Damascus, it says in verse 19. Well, what had happened? Saul had hit the wall. He came to the point where running and fighting was no longer an option, where every title and position no longer held any weight for him in light of the fact that he had met Jesus. Saul needed to and made a choice because this Jesus can no longer be dismissed, can no longer be ignored, can no longer be thought of as a, a misguided or misunderstood prophet or, or guru. He, he had to be taken seriously. This is the point that every person who comes face to face with the gospel comes to. Will I stop running and will I take him at his word and revelation or continue to reject him? Because no one can truly meet him and leave the same or, or think they can take him lightly. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us and he did not intend to. That is the point that Saul came to. That was true for Saul and it's true for each of us. To respond to the person and work and the words of Jesus who said of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are words that have to be wrestled with. I mean, they would be easy to dismiss as words of a misguided prophet, but then there's that entire, that, there's that entire resurrection thing. <laughs> Proving his authority and legitimacy, his power over death, his power over sin, and his right to call himself Lord, leader, God over my life, and also over yours. So where do we find ourselves in this story? I, I think Saul's story offers us an important question, and it also offers us a beautiful invitation. And I think the question it, it causes us to ask is, what road are we on? In big and small ways, we take roads that lead us towards or away from God, that try to drive God away, that try to maybe numb us to the realities of God and, and, and live our lives as if he doesn't exist and continue to construct meaning through what we can accumulate and what we can accomplish. And like Saul, that just causes us to become angry and anxious and malicious. We're just plain lost. And here's the thing, our Damascus roads are all different, but they are meant to bring us to the same point, to break our compulsive independence and arrogance and rebuild our reality around a newly Christ-oriented life. So what road are you on? Do, do you even know? Where is it leading? These are important questions. And connected to that, the, the second thing we can get from this story today is a beautiful invitation. That whatever road you are on, and regardless of how far down that road you have traveled, you have not traveled too far to be found. If we're honest, if I'm honest, there are people I have written off. There are those who have wandered so far down the road that my weak theology has given up on them. My weak love has given up on them. I've, I've remained like Ananias when he was first invited to be a part of Saul's conversion. I can't wrap my mind around a love of Jesus that pursues the proud, the murderous, and the warped. This is a convicting story to never give up on those Jesus refuses to give up on. And to never say no to those whom Jesus has said yes. And for some, that might even be ourselves. It doesn't matter what you've come here with, how far you are down the Damascus road. The, the, the amazing stories that we have been walking through are not for a hand clap and a warm feeling. These are an invitation into the same story that God is writing. I don't know what road brought you to this point, whether you're at home sitting on a couch or at your computer. I'm not sure if it's filled with ups and downs. I'm sure it is filled with ups and downs and twists that you didn't see coming along the way. And you've accumulated titles, both good ones for yourself and bad ones for yourself. Well, the invitation of Jesus is to drop them all. Let them all fall. The things Saul was chasing, trying to accomplish, he believed would bring him life. But the irony was, 
And it is true for you and me, they're actually keeping us from life. What brought life was confronting the question of who Jesus was and responding accordingly. For some people, that takes blindly running until we hit a wall at full speed. For others, it takes pressing the brakes and reading the signs. I don't know where you're at today, but it's my prayer that you will do the hard work of listening and exploring the claims of Jesus, responding to his words, his life, death, and resurrection, and let that be today. Church, I love you. I miss you. There's so many of you I still haven't seen as we make our way out of COVID. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you, and may he give you his eternal peace. God bless.